Good morning, New Life Church, beloved of God. What do you think the odds are that I trip over this, these rocks here during the sermon? Pretty good? i would be very careful. That is what you call a workplace hazard. Uh, glad you're here this morning. And the summer is kind of a time for family reunions often, and so I know even here this morning, there's a variety of, of family reunions represented, people from out, out of town visiting. Uh, I know Jana, our new office administrator, her folks are here from Quebec. She has not seen her parents or her dad anyway in two and a half years due to COVID. So welcome Somervilles. Uh, Fred is a pastor in Quebec. And so we want to welcome... Ottawa? Is that not in Quebec? They kind of speak French there, right? Like, cut me some slack. I'm an Alberta boy. What do I know? Ottawa. Tomato, tomato. Right? Jeez, that didn't start well. Uh, Ottawa. Yeah. Well, welcome here, Somervilles. Would you bring our, uh, our blessing back to your congregation when you return there? Uh, before you... Yeah. Well, anyway, give them... You know, when you're in ministry that long, yeah. <laughs> and he asked me actually in the foyer, I just met Fred, and he said, so how long have you been here? I said, well, September 1st, it'll be six years. Can you believe it? Time flies when you're having fun, right? And, um, and it'll be 15 years come September that I've been in pastoral ministry. You know what that means? I've been here six years. It means this year is a year of sabbatical for me. <laughs> Yay! You will get a well-deserved break for me at some point in the next 12 months. So I'm just starting to think about what that, what that period of rest and renewal could look in my life. And the reason he stayed up here is because we just want to make you aware that uh, the CMT, the, the, the leadership team of our church, um, you know, given that uh, I'll be moving at some point in these next uh, nine months into a few months away, a sabbatical, uh, we just thought it would be wise to invite this guy here who is committed to serve with us in halftime capacity uh, as a ministry assistant until the end of August, but the CMT asked if he would consider to uh, being with us for another full year. In that capacity went with some added responsibilities, and uh, he asked God, and God said yes. <laughs> and so we're really glad that Howard is uh... so. So just so you're aware, uh, Howard, uh, his time in this role is, uh, will be here for another year. So I'm just really thrilled about that. It's been great. He brings a lot of maturity and experience to our team and, and gifts. And so thanks, Howard, uh, for, for continuing on in this capacity. And uh, because of that, he had been on our CMT, our church board, and also want to make you aware that just given kind of a, a little bit longer of a duration on the staff team, um, he's just felt it was probably prudent to take a step off of the board outside of that capacity so that he can be fully devoted to, um, to work on the team. Uh, all summer we've been talking about names, and the names are important. They say something about who we are. You know, they carry our identity, they have meaning, which is why I've always kind of been bothered by my name, and, and I've shared this with you kind of before at the beginning of this series, uh, at the beginning of summer I talked about my name. My name is Rusty, never particularly loved my name, not just because it doesn't even really seem like a human name, it seems more like an animal name, but just because... It, it, doesn't, um, it doesn't really carry a, a really powerful meaning, right? Like, I'm the oldest of four kids, and so 
Uh, my, my sister Patera comes from Peter. Her name means she's like steady as a rock. It's a good name. And then my brother Richard, that means lion-hearted. That's a good name. And then my younger brother Caleb, that, Caleb means devoted to God. Well, that's a good name. But Rusty means redheaded. And it just, A, I'm not redheaded. B, it's, it's nothing wrong with being redheaded, but it just doesn't seem like a special name. And so, I, I, you know, back in my early teenage years, I was kind of lamenting this to my parents, and they said, well, why don't we give you a new meaning to your name? I said, you can do that? Said, yeah, we can do that. So, so my parents, they just thought about that, and um, I don't know, I might have been like 13 years old. Like, what would, they, what would be a new, new meaning they would give to me? Uh, to, to Rusty, and um, so I guess God had laid on their heart some of the words that were given to the prophet Jeremiah, who was young when God called him, and, and I felt from a young age that God was calling me into ministry. I didn't know if it was going to be across the world as a missionary or in a local church, but I already was kind of having those stirrings, and, um, and so, you know, God had laid on their hearts the words from Jeremiah when the Lord came to him as, as a young man, and God said to him, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, Jeremiah. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a preacher to the nations. And so they, they, they felt like God was giving them a new meaning to the name. It means appointed. Rusty doesn't mean redheaded anymore. Rusty now means appointed. I, I like that better. I like that better. Um, and so n- names have... Uh, meanings for us and for God as well, because the Bible gives us a variety of names that God gives Himself, that others give God as they experience more of who He is. And in the summer, we're going through some of those names one by one. And as we look at these names given to God, we're discovering in a deeper way who God is, His character, His nature, and what that means for us today. And so this morning, we're going to look at a name that, that as I've been doing some studying, for me, I just find it really beautiful. And it's the name Jehovah Nisi. Now, Jehovah, you might remember, is, uh, is, is, the, is just the word Lord. When you see in your Old Testament in capital letters, L-O-R-D, Lord, that's translating Yahweh or Jehovah. So Jehovah is Lord, but Nisi means banner. So Jehovah Nisi means the Lord our banner. And this name is given to God here in the story that you just heard, a really interesting story in the book of Exodus, chapter 17, where God has led his people, the Israelites, out of bondage, out of slavery in Egypt, through the Red Sea. They're on their way to the promised land. They've got to go through this desert where there's lots of trials. And here they find themselves um, along the way being confronted by this enemy nation, the Amalekites, who look on this people group or who are beleaguered. They're small. Uh, they're weary. And they see a vulnerable nation they can take advantage of. And so they think they're going to come and they're going to make war against the Israelites and take what is theirs. And so the Amalekites come to make war against this vulnerable people. And God gives to Israel an interesting strategy. He says to Moses, Moses, I want you to go kind of up. This is a very mountainous area. Go up high on the hill overlooking the valley where the battle's going to be. And, um, and I want you to go and I want you to lift your hands there. And um, as long as your hands are lifted during this battle... The Israelites will, will be winning, but if your hands uh, are not lifted, then the Amalekites will get the upper hand. And so, it's this really strange story 
battle strategy where you find Moses at this point is a bit of an aged man, not particularly strong, and he goes up there lifting his hands, but, but you know, his arms start to waver, and so Aaron, his brother, and another guy named Hur, they come and they, and they support his hands, they, they prop their elbows underneath, and they keep his hands lifted high throughout this battle, and the Israelites win the day and they defeat the Amalekites. And so um, at the end of that, Moses builds this altar and names this altar Jehovah Nissi. The Lord is our banner. Banner. Uh, what does that mean? What does a banner have to do with anything in the story have to do with God? What is a banner? Now, when you hear the word banner, you're, you're going to hear probably one of two different things, depending on whether you're an artsy person or a sporty person. If you're a banner, what you're going to think is you're going to think of some fabric right, with some stitching on it, maybe some words engraved on that that maybe is lifted high somewhere prominently up on a wall uh, that has something on it, it's important, whether it's like a value, a word, a mission statement. If you go into our foyer, if you look up high, you will see banners or six different banners that have important words on there. We are people devoted to worship is on one. Fellowship is on another. Service is on another. Discipleship is on another. Evangelism, right? These are prominently displayed to remind us, oh, this is what's important. And so you'll often put those values, a mission statement, or maybe a nation's flag is a banner, right, that represents something about who we are, what we value. And so if you're an artsy person, you hear the word banner, that's maybe what comes to mind, right? This big piece of fabric hung up high that has something important on it. If you're a sporty person, you might, when you think of a banner, you, you, you might th think of that thing you win, right? When you win the championship, you, get, you win a banner. You get to raise a banner. And so my daughter now, she was on the high school volleyball team and, and, the, and the badminton team, and this is the terminology here. We want to win the banner. And if you go into the Stonewall gym in any gym, you'll see wrapped around the gym banners that represent victory. They were the champions. They defeated their foes. You'll see that in school gyms. You'll see that you go to the Jets games. There they are when they won the Stanley. Oh, never mind. That's just, it's not there yet. But um, back when I was in high school, Medicine Hat High School on the football team, I just so desperately wanted to win a banner, wanted to win the championship. And every year, all three years, we got, got to the championship game and we ran into the Brooks Buffaloes. I hate the Brooks Buffaloes. They just always, they always had our number. We could beat everyone else, but we could not beat the Brooks Buffaloes. They always won the championship game. They always got the banner. I never won a banner. My two younger brothers won a banner, but I never won a banner. And you can tell 20 years later, I'm over it. It's, it, it does not bother me that I didn't win a banner and my brothers won banners. So when we think of a banner, some of us, we might think that thing that we get or we raise that becomes a sign of being a champion, right? Being victorious. And, and in a way, both of these things we may think of when we think of a banner are, are similar, help us understand actually what is meant in the Bible when the Bible speaks about a banner. But instead in the Bible of, of kind of thinking about sports, you know, the battle uh, of, on the gridiron, it's, talk, it's always talking about a real battle. You always see this word banner 
uh, representing battle. It's a war term. It's always associated with war. And back in biblical times, a banner was a wooden structure or maybe a big flag, a fabric flag that was raised high for people to see for one of two reasons, either so that it could be a rallying point for people in battle to come together. And so you'll see when the people of God were were, were to camp in the desert as they were traveling, God gave them instruction to camp in different military divisions based on their tribe underneath their banner. Each one was supposed to raise their banner. Each tribe had a banner as a rallying point that brought them together. It also represented a sign of victory. So in battle, when you would win a battle, you would... You know, the, the, the other person, they were defeated. Their banner was torn down. Your banner was lifted high. You are victorious. A banner symbolized victory. And so you see this in uh, Psalm chapter 20, verse 5. It says, May we shout for joy over your victory and lift up our banners in the name of our God. So a banner, when it's lifted up, represents victory in battle over the enemy. And so what Moses is saying here in this story, when, when after this battle, he names the altar, the Lord is our banner. What he's saying is Yahweh, the Lord, is our victory. He is our victory. You know, in, in this story, which, you know, I, I've heard many times over the years, I've always thought of it in a bit of a different way. I, I always pictured Moses raising his hands and, and, and the key thing were the hands, the hands of Moses, right? When it was all about Moses' hands, when they were raised, there was victory. When they were lowered, there wasn't victory. And so I've often looked at that story as like an example of, okay, church, lift up your leaders, you know, come and, and put your hand underneath your pad, like, like pray for us, you know, support, lift up your leaders, you know, because when our hands are high, you know, then when we're supported, then, then the Lord can, you know, do great things and... And, um, and, and that may be a kind of part of what we might take from this story. But, but in studying this, what I realized is that it's actually not Moses' hands that bring the victory here. This isn't really about Moses' hands at all. It's about what happens to be in Moses' hands. Because we're told at the, uh, at the beginning of the story, it says, Moses said to Joshua, choose, choose some of our men and go out and fight the Malachites. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with a staff of God in my hand. So, so really, it's, it's not the hand of Moses that's decisive here. It's what's in his hand that is lifted high. And what is in the hand of Moses? It's the staff of God, he calls it. This is the same staff that God... Yeah, here it is. Okay, so I always pictured the story like this. Moses' hands. It was important that his hands... And it's not what's important is not his hands. What's important is that in his hands are the staff of God. So this is what it would have looked like. Moses raising high this staff. And what is this staff? Well, this staff is that same tool that God had used when he, when he brought people out of Egypt. They came to the Red Sea. They had Pharaoh and his army bearing down on them. What are we going to do? We're going to be destroyed by Pharaoh's army. God said, take that staff, strike the sea, and I will deliver you. And he did. And then when they got to the other side, God said, now you take that staff and you strike the water and the water will come together again and destroy the enemy, destroy Pharaoh's army. And it did. So this staff represented the power of God to bring victory to his people in in what otherwise seemed like dire circumstances. 
God won the victory. That's what this represents, this staff. And we see this pattern over and over again when God's people uh, confront, are confronted by enemies. You know, the story of Gideon. He was going out against, I think, the Midianites, a bigger army, 32,000 men. God says, you got too many. What? I got too many? They have 100,000, I've got 32,000. God says, you got too many. And everyone is afraid, send them home. 22,000 go home. He's left with 10,000 left. God says, you got too many. What? I got too many? You got too many. So here's some instruction. You know, have them drink like this. Everybody goes home except for 300 men. And God says, I'm going to deliver you using 300 men. And maybe you know this story, right? And God says, I'm going to use 300 men so you know the victory doesn't belong to you. The victory belongs to God. The odds don't matter with God. And he does this over and over again in 2 Kings chapter 6, right? When the prophet Elisha, when, when, when the city is being besieged by the enemy and, and, and it looks like they're done for, God opens their eyes to see this kind of this angelic army around them, which far outseeds the enemy. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, you've got this incredible story, King Jehoshaphat, that's a good name. Megan, you have a boy? Jehoshaphat. <laughs> Again, the enemy has come against them. The, the odds are so terrible. They don't know what to do. They just cry out to God. God gives them instruction. He says, hey, I want you to go. Hey, whole families, fathers, mothers, children, go up on the hill and worship and see what I will do. And there's this incredible story. In 2 Corinthians 20, when, when the people of God comes and they, and they don't have swords in their hand, they have praises, they have worship. As they worship God and lift their hands to God, God sows division in the enemy armies and they kill one another and they're routed and, and Israel doesn't even have to lift a finger. God shows them over and over again. He is Jehovah Nisi, the Lord our banner, the Lord who is victory for his people. And so if you read a little bit more back in Psalm 20, Verses 5, 5 to 7. May we shout for joy over your victory and lift up our banners. In the name of our God, may the Lord grant all your requests. Now this I know, the Lord gives victory to his anointed. He answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with victorious power, with, with the victorious power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Some trust in weapons of war. We trust in our God who is a warrior. We trust in Jehovah Nisi, the Lord, our victory. Uh, but is he our... So maybe the natural question is, that's great. That happened a long time ago. That was for the nation of Israel. Can we say, we, could, we can say the Lord was... His victory or the Lord is their victory. Like today, can we say the Lord is our victory? The Lord is my victory. Like can we claim that? Is this a name that God gives to us and says, you can call me this? Is he our banner? Well, it says this in Isaiah chapter 11. This is often a text you'll see at Christmas time because it's a prophetic text that speaks about the coming of the Messiah, the Savior that God would send. 
Isaiah chapter 11, starting at verse 1, it says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Now, Jesse was the father of David, king, right? Because there had been the promise that out of the line, the kingly line of David, God would send a Messiah. So now it's just a stump because, you know, they've been defeated, they've been routed. That doesn't even exist anymore. It's just a stump. The tree's been cut down. Just a stump. But a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, speaking of this one whom God will send, the servant. And then in verse 10, a few verses later, in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. God says, I'm going to send my Messiah into the world. He's going to come out of the stump of Jesse. And he will be a banner. When he comes, he will be a banner. He will bring victory. He will gather all nations to him, and his resting place will be glorious. So in the future, God's going to send someone who will become for them a banner, who will bring victory. Just listen to these words of Jesus in John chapter 12. He says, now my soul is troubled because he knows what is coming to him. He knows the death that he's approaching. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Verse 31, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, and I, this is Jesus speaking, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. What he's saying is, he is, this one that God will send, I, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. I will be this banner. And then John says, he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. In other words, when Jesus says, I'm going to be lifted up and I'm going to draw all people to myself, he's talking about his body being lifted up on the cross to die on the top of Mount Calvary. So what is the banner? The banner is the cross of Jesus. What is that staff of God today? You know, like Moses had the staff and he raised it high was the banner of the the reminder that God is victory. What is the staff of God today? It is the cross of Jesus. That's why we put up our crosses high. We don't worship crosses. We don't need to put up crosses. No instruction to put up crosses. But you know, we've got a big cross on the outside of the building. And, and when you come into our foyer, there's a big cross. And, and in, in different places, maybe in your house or maybe even on your body, maybe even tattooed in ink permanently, you might have a cross. And, 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 and what is that? It, it's, a ban- it's a sign that reminds us of victory, of what God has done and promises to do for us. That's why we put them up high, because the cross is the banner, the sign of victory. Paul describes uh, Jesus this way in 1 Thessalonians chapter 15, verses 54 to 57. He says, Paul says, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? And where, O death, is your sting? The, The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus is our victory, 
Not over the Amalekites, though. We don't face the Amalekites. So what does that mean? In what way is Jesus our banner? In what way is Jesus our victory? In order for there to be victory, that means there's battle. There has to be enemies that are fought and defeated. Who are these enemies of ours that Jesus, through the cross, has fought and defeated? Well, the verse before in 56, he alludes to them. He says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. And Paul is alluding to these three kind of enemies of God. And we see the sequence, right? The law led to sin, the sin led to death. And so, I think what Paul is saying is there are three enemies that Jesus has fought on the cross and he has defeated for us, in which he has become our victor. And I just want to share, what are these three enemies that, that Jesus, through the cross, has defeated? Number one, Jesus has defeated, according to Paul, the power of the law. Seems kind of weird, because what is the law? Well, the law is just like all the commandments that God has given. It's this, this whole system of, of commands that they were to do. And if you're here last week, you know the terms of the covenant God made with His people. The Ten Commandments being the best example. This is the law. God defeated the power of the law. Does it like, okay, God's command, what does that mean? Are, are God's commands bad? Are they sinful? Of course not. Paul puts it this way in Romans 7. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. Verse 13, did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it, that is the law, was used, used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. That's deep. That's deep. But, but, but if you just think, what, what he's saying is the law is good. But the effect of the law in our lives is that it doesn't make us good. It just shows that we are bad without a shadow of a doubt. That's the effect it has. The law, when it's given, reveals our sin. When there is no commandment, there is no commandment to break. But when there's a commandment now, the heart reveals itself. I used to live in this little town, Blind River. There, there was one stoplight Never had to wait. There was no traffic jam, no rush hour. It was beautiful. I am a patient person, so I thought. I'm exceeding in patience, full of it. And then I went to Toronto, and I was driving on the 401. And I'm like, it's 9 o'clock at night. There's 18 lanes here, and we're stopped. And what I found out about myself was, Rusty ain't that patient. No, I thought I was patient, but when I was put in a position where this could show itself, I realized, oh, now, now did that situation make Rusty, did I change? No, no, it's that thing that was kind of hidden became revealed by the situation. And that's what he's saying, law, okay, when you've never been commanded to share something, you, you've maybe never known that you were greedy, but now God comes and he says, I've given you two, I've given that person none, I want you to give them one, I want you to share, and you go, no, it's mine. I will not. Did, did, your heart didn't change, the law showed your heart for what it really was. 
right? That's the effect. The law declares us guilty. That's the power of the law. It's good, but it shows that we're not. The law declares us guilty. It doesn't make us lawbreakers. It shows that we are lawbreakers in our heart. Each one of us, we have hurt others. Each one of us, we have been selfish. Each one of us, we have not loved God as we ought, the giver of life, the giver of all good things. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are guilty in our sin, and that's what the law makes very clear. So when it says that Jesus defeated the law, he didn't say that stuff wasn't good. He's saying the effect of the law is that all it could do is pronounce you guilty as a sinner, as a lawbreaker. But Jesus has defeated our guilt on the cross. Colossians chapter 2. Verses 13 to 15, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away. How? By nailing it to the cross. On the cross, when Jesus died there, he's like, he paid our debt. That debt that stood against us and condemned us. We were guilty and he took the penalty for our guilt so that we could be declared innocent. So that we could be forgiven. So God's righteousness would be satisfied and this would not have to be held against us so that we could be free of guilt. Verse 15, and having disarmed the powers and the authorities, Jesus made a public, public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. In the cross, he triumphed. When he died on the cross, he triumphed. And what did he triumph over? He triumphed over our guilt. Right? The cross means we are forgiven. No condemnation. The penalty is paid. God, through Jesus, God does not hold the past or the sin of the present or the future against us. It does not bring his condemnation. Is that good news? There's one guy who thought it was good news. The rest of you need to become Christians. You can see me afterwards. We can do like one mass prayer. Right? This is good news because a lot of us, we carry guilt. We carry all these things that just weigh us and we wonder kind of, you know, does God just, is he done with us? Does he put us on the shelf? Are we tarnished goods? There is full forgiveness because of what Jesus has done on the cross. It doesn't matter what you've done. That is good news. Jesus has defeated the power of the law, the thing that declared us guilty. Secondly, Jesus has defeated through the cross the power of sin because it's better than that he's just forgiven our debt because we can be forgiven our debt and be, okay, you're clean, clean slate, but you can go and do the exact same thing again if nothing has really changed on the inside. You'll just keep falling into the same bad habits and the same traps. But, but what Jesus has done on the cross and winning our victory is better than just winning us forgiveness. He has brought about true transformation. He has, he has won he has defeated the power of sin that enslaves our hearts. He has broken the chain of sin that, that gives us no choice, but we are slaves to sin. He has broken that so that we can be different. 
In Christ, we are made a new creation, Paul said. Our heart, we are actually given a new heart. Not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh, as it says in the Bible, that is responsive to God and the law of God. So not only did Jesus free us on the cross from the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin. And so Paul would say in Philippians chapter 2, he would say, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who has that work in you to work out His good purpose. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, you have been forgiven. You have been saved. Like work, strive for holiness, to do what is right, to obey. But God is at work in you to bring that about, to will and to act according to his good pleasure. I love that promise. God is not just for you. God is in you through Jesus. When you confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, there is a there is a new work that God begins in your heart, the Bible says, as he, as he by the Holy Spirit, which he makes indwell you to bring about, to empower good change, to break the bonds of sin, of destructive habits that we can become enslaved to. And so Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there's no temptation No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. I memorized that as a young man. You know, we all face temptations, but as a young man, God tempted, you know, a lot of bad stuff, harmful stuff that maybe tastes good in the moment, but, but brings about death, not life. Remember committing that verse to memory, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear, but he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Do you see how God is at work? God is faithful. He will not allow. He will provide. God is at work in your life. God will empower righteousness. And this is a process. This is a lifelong process called sanctification where God by his spirit works with you as you work and strive to bring about goodness, to overcome that which is wrong and harmful. And so, I don't know, maybe some of you find yourself maybe battling some sin and and it feels like you just can never win that battle. There's that thing that you keep stumbling into and there's that thing that you just think is, is just so a part of who you are. It could never be any different. But Jesus is our banner. Jesus is our victory. Not only has he forgiven our sin, but he empowers, by the spirit he gives us, he empowers us to live the good lives that he has called us to live. So don't give up. God, do work. Don't sit. Don't sit. Do nothing. Work. Do what you can do. And know that God is at work in you, overcoming the power of sin in your life that leads to harm and destruction. The third thing Jesus defeated on the cross was he defeated the power of death. There is no enemy as powerful as as death, right? Death is complete loss, defeat. It is complete destruction. And people today and people of all times have been trying to find ways to avoid it. 
And there is no way to avoid it. It just seems like death will come to all. Death is the final word, and there's no way around that. And yet, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Thanks to God, He has given us the victory in Jesus Christ. Jesus is victorious over death, over your death and my death. As Jesus would say in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and he who lives by believing in me will never die. Otherwise, you're going to live, yeah, you're going to die, but through me, you can have a life on the other side of death for which there is no more death, just life. Death, because of Jesus, is defeated. Death does not have the final word. It no longer has that power, that sting. It is not the end. That's good news we've just sung about. Jesus has defeated the greatest enemy, death. Through his death on the cross and through his resurrection. And it follows that if Jesus has defeated death, that, that thing of greatest power, ultimate destruction, then, then he's defeated everything else that can come against us that would seek to sink us, destroy us, overcome us. If Jesus has defeated death, then he, then, then he is victor over everything else that could come about in our life that would overwhelm and overcome us. And that can be a whole bunch of different things, a whole bunch of different enemies that we could face in our life. Situations, financial situations, health situations, relational situations, emotional situations. God says uh, through Paul in Romans 8, In all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also, along with giving us His Son, graciously give us all things? In all things God works for the good of those who love Him. In, order, in other words, there, there's no situation that you can face, no enemy that confronts you that God cannot and will not overcome. I mean, after all, our Lord used the cross, the symbol of utter defeat, as the path to victory. Let us not forget that our faith is built on the cross, a sign of death that God used to bring about life for us. He used death to defeat death. And so for God to be victorious, it doesn't mean that there aren't going to be enemies, there aren't going to be bruises and battles and blood spilt in, in life. I mean, that, that's a guarantee. A few verses later, Paul would say, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or nakedness or famine or danger or sword? I mean, all these things can befall you, Christian. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you're not going to get cancer in the middle of your life. It doesn't mean that you're not going to go through a bankruptcy. It doesn't mean that you're not going to lose a child before you go. As unnatural as that seems, that's not what that means. It means that in spite of all of that, all those things, none of those situations can separate us from the victory, the love of God, the victory that has been secured for us in Jesus Christ. God is working in and through all of those things to bring about eternal and lasting victory for all who belong to Him. 
If death can't defeat you, then nothing can. For the end is certain, and that makes all the difference, right? I remember years ago when my oldest daughter, Annika, was, was little, and I was reading her a book, and it was her favorite book. It was one, one of the ones that had five pages. Honestly, those are my favorite types of books, too. One of those cardboard books, and it was the story of the Good Samaritan. And maybe you know the story, right? The man is on the path, a robber comes, beats him up, and steals his stuff. And we got to that, we got to that page where there, there he was, the man was beaten and bloody, laying on the ground. And I would say to Annika, oh, look at, he's hurt. Oh, no. She'd go, it's okay, Daddy. It's okay. I know how the story ends. <laughs> you read me this book before. It's okay, Daddy. She's consoling me. It's okay, Daddy. I know how it ends. Like I know in the next page, the, 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 this, this, this good Samaritan comes and helps him and bandages his wounds and meets all of his needs and he's healed. I know how it ends. And this is true for us, right? Because of Jesus Christ, like we know how it ends. And there's going to be times, there's going to be where, where we have enemies and there's battles and we're going to feel like we're kind of broken on the side of the road, but we know how it ends. That's just the middle of the story. It ends with victory, and if it ends with victory, that means nothing in the middle can overcome or overwhelm us or defeat us because God is leading us to that end which is sure through Jesus Christ, the one who has defeated death and gives us life forevermore. We know how it ends. So I don't know what battle you're facing, what enemy that you might be facing in life, big or small, but God has given us a banner, the cross, which represents the victory that belongs to us. And that's why we gather to worship. I mean, that's what we're doing this morning when we sing songs. Like, what we're doing is we're looking up, you know, just, just like when they were fighting the battle, you know, Joshua, they're getting tired, fighting the enemy. And then they look up, and then they just see Moses with this staff of God. <sighs> okay. Keep going. God is with us. He's for us. He's, he's given us the victory. I got to play it out. I got to fight the battle. But, the, but, but victory is secure because that staff of God is raised. And that's what worship is. When we come together, we come together and we sing and we look up to the cross. And we come from the, the week, all the battles that we're facing, and we gather together, and when we declare those words, and when we hear the people around us declaring those words, our attention is brought back to the banner, the sign of victory. And it goes, yeah, victory is ours. G Jesus is Jehovah Nissi. Okay, this is the gift of the Sabbath. This is the gift of the God's call to gather and worship. It's not like this command, do it or God's angry. It's like, it's this great thing. Why wouldn't you? God has built into the rhythm of the week. The what is the Sabbath? The Sabbath is you, can, you get to pause from all your work and efforts and just do nothing and be reminded that your victory doesn't rest in horses or chariots or in your strength or in your wisdom, but it's something that God gives. And you don't got to do anything for it, but trust. That's the beauty of the Sabbath, this whole idea of just stopping to cast our eyes back on the banner, on the cross. And that's, just know that's what we're doing when we gather Sunday mornings. That's what we do when we, when we pray together, when we worship together. We're putting our eyes back up on the banner. Like Moses said, after the battle was done, write it on a scroll 
So Joshua remembers what happened here so he can kind of go back and be reminded, oh yeah. God is Jehovah Nissi. So worship is remembering, it's expressing faith. This is what John says in 1 John 5, 4 and 5. Everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, of course. Jesus is the only one who defeats the power of guilt, the only one who defeats, can defeat the power of sin, the only one who's defeated the power of death, of course. There is no other victory than the victory that Jesus has won, the victory that He gives to all who receive His victory through faith. Not through doing, not through our power, not through our wisdom, but through faith. That's the key. His victory becomes our victory when we keep our faith fixed in Him and His victory in spite of all the battles we might find ourselves in because victory is found in Jesus. He has defeated the power of guilt, the power of sin, the power of death. He is our banner. And so what? As we go from here, let me just close with these words going back to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 57, when he said, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then what? So what? Then he closes. He says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Okay, so these are words for you. And whatever, whatever kind of enemy you might be facing, whatever, whatever battle you're fighting in your life, okay, these are words to us, right, who have put our faith in Jesus Christ and received his victory into our life. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Don't run from the battle. Don't flee. Don't surrender. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, and I love this, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That's a really important sentence. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Why? I like that that next word, because, is important. It, It didn't say, so that your labor in the Lord won't be in vain. He didn't say, work hard or else, or else you win a victory. No, it's the opposite. Work hard because you know. You know that all of your work ends in victory. The outcome is certain. It is secure in Jesus. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that in him, the one who is our victory, none of our labor, none of our battling is in vain. We will reign with him. Victory is secure. For out of the stump of Jesse will come a banner for all peoples, and they will come to him, and in him they will find a place of rest that is glorious. So we're going to pray And the team is going to lead us in in a final song. And and this final song is kind of our prayer. It's it's declaring that our battle belongs to God, that He's the one that gives victory, that we will trust in Him. And as we pray and and, and as we sing that song together, just wherever there's, uh, whatever battle you're facing this morning, 
um, just say, God, I find, I find my rest in you. I, I come back to you. I come back to the cross. I come to that, back to that victory, and I will find your rest. I will find your peace in the midst of the fight because your resting place is glorious. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are Jehovah Nisi, that you do not just give us commands and instruction and, and then just release us to do, Lord, what we will do, Lord, but um, you go before us and you fight our battles and you win our victory. Really, the, the, vic, you know, the battles that, that we lose, that we have lost, God, like you, you have defeated our sin. You have won for us forgiveness. You have defeated the power of sin in our lives. Lord, if there's anything that we're struggling in here, maybe, maybe some just kind of sinful habit or destructive pattern or whatever, we're just feeling tired. I, I just pray, God, that, that you would just give everyone in this room the, um, just the ability to, to not give up but just to keep going, to keep trusting that you will be at work in their lives as they look to you. We thank you, God, that you have defeated death, that there is life and only life for all those people that belong to you, God, and there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that we have in your son, Jesus, either life nor death, the present or the future, angels nor demons, Nothing on earth or above the earth or under the earth. There is nothing that can separate us from the victory that is ours through your son, Jesus. But just give us assurance of that. Now, Lord, as each one of us just kind of in our own conversation with you, as, as you bring to our mind those battles we're facing, Lord, and we present those to you, Lord, would you just kind of lead us back into that position of rest and that confidence and that faith as we look to the cross and as we were reminded that, yep, you are victorious you have given us victory, God, that we can trust in you, God. We just thank you that um, you have done this for us. We love you so, so much. Would you just now receive our worship? In Jesus' name, amen.